Fire in the hole! Hello and welcome to the Feeling Your Oats podcast. Whether it's great lives or great tragedies, or just showing up for the adventure, history that is told without being felt is minimized. Like food that is eaten without being tasted. What's the point? Tell the stories, feel the people, learn the lessons, be a better you because of them. Don't keep reinventing the wheel. Will you get some of the story wrong? Yes! Will the size of the fish increase each time? Probably. Will there be a different perspective? Of course. So what? When we stand on the shoulders of the past, we can see with greater clarity into our future. True stories well told can inspire, caution, entertain, and instruct. If you judge the yesterdays of history by today's standards, then you deserve the same. If you erase it, you will repeat it. Please come on in and make yourself at home. Say, while you're here, can I get you something to think today? there. My name is Edward Augustus Boardman. Most people just call me Gus. I was born on the 20th of June, 1859 in Buffalo, New York. My father, Louis Boardman, was born in France and my mother, Mary Frances Riffier, well, she was born in Wales. I moved from New York State to Colorado in the latter part of the 1870s and found work with Union Pacific Railroad. A short while after arriving in Colorado, I met in Denver a beautiful young Irish woman by the name of Catherine Fitzsimmons. She had arrived in the United States from Kenturk, Ireland, when she was just 17 and was working at the time for a wealthy family in Denver. We were married on the 23rd of November, 1881, and took up residence in Golden, Colorado. That's just a few miles west of Denver about 5,279 feet in elevation. I currently work as a roadmaster for several railways under the Union Pacific Railroad. Mostly supervisor jobs recently, like the Georgetown Loop. That was one of my projects. If you haven't been on that locomotive ride, you should. Still running today, actually. Believe it or not, they found motion picture footage of that adventurous loop from 1903, when I was still working there. I will include links in the show notes to that film and some more recent footage along that spectacular ride. I am proud to say that the Georgetown Loop was considered an engineering wonder of the world at the time. And the famous Devil's Gate High Bridge? That section stands 95 feet from the creek bottom. Well, that loop is still functioning and serves as a tourist attraction in Georgetown, Colorado. Adding to its appeal is the fact that it's a narrow gauge route. A favorite subspecies to railroad enthusiasts. The goal with the Georgetown Loop was to connect the thriving mining towns of Georgetown at 8,540 feet in elevation and Silver Plume, Colorado, 9,101 feet in elevation. 
You know, as the crow flies, these towns are only two miles apart. But in order to get a train to travel that steep, narrow canyon of Clear Creek, Union Pacific Chief Engineer Jacob Blinkensdurfer devised a system of curves and bridges, reducing the average grade to 3%. His plan included three hairpin turns, four bridges, and a 30-degree horseshoe curve from Georgetown to Silverplume. With that corkscrew route, it took nearly double the linear distance and gained more than 600 feet in elevation to connect them. By 1884, the first trains were arriving in Silverplume. This line remains today as a tourist draw for those who venture west to encounter the wild ruggedness and romance of Colorado. Mountain streams, high elevation air, the Rocky Mountains, and steam locomotives. The railroad keeps referring to me as versatile. I wonder if versatile is a Greek word meaning gone a lot. <laughs> I spend a lot of time away from home on these jobs. My daughter Frances knows that all too well. It's the nature of the beast. I've spent time in Boston, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas, California, and through every town along the tracks to get to such locations. I swear the kids grow another inch taller every time that iron horse brings me home again. It seems just like when I finally get settled in home with life and stuff, I'm always being summoned by these callers from the railroad. That's how we did it in those days, especially when things go wrong. Really wrong. I remember this one time. Oh, excuse me. Hold that thought. Ed! Ed, you need to report to the station immediately. There's been a terrible train wreck. And, and well, you're as versatile as they come. He is caught under the engine and asking specifically for you. He? Yeah, yes, he. I'll explain on the way. Let's go. We'll finish this story in a bit. Duty calls. Catherine, dear, I'll be back as soon as I can. Isabella, Eddie, help your mother keep an eye on Frances. She likes to wander. I love you, children. I'm here. Gus! Oh, thank you, Gus. I know you can get me out of here in no time at all. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Let's get the engine off of him. Roll that wrecking Derek as close to this spot as you can, now! Well, we certainly got him out of that mess, but as was sadly common with those wrecks, if the engineers weren't thrown free of the crash, they were usually inundated with hot steam that burned their bodies from the outside and scalded their lungs internally with each breath. This poor gentleman had been scalded from the heat of the steam pipe so badly that he didn't live very long after that. I in my storytelling. Oh yes, I was about to ask you a trivia question. Have you ever heard of the territory of Jefferson? I bet not. If you blinked, you might have missed it. What if I told you that there is a place on this earth where you could have lived in your life in two counties, three territories, and one state in the same house, on the same piece of property? Can you imagine the mailing address nightmares you'd have gone through? Trying to explain to relatives that you hadn't moved, but your address had? Well, believe it or not, it happened. It was the summer of 1858, and the region around Cripple Creek was located in Kansas, the territory of Kansas. In May of that same year, a fellow by the name of William Greenberry Russell with his Cherokee bride Susan Jane Willis fondly referred to as Suki, well, her and 105 other like-minded prospecting friends of theirs arrived in the South Platte River Valley at the confluence of Cherry Creek and the South Platte River. As they worked their way south, they turned up good diggings at the mouth of Little Dry Creek, just four miles away. Word got out quickly, and this discovery was the immediate cause of the Pikes Peak Gold Rush. As their encampment grew there, it became a permanent settlement and was named after the 5th Territorial Governor of Kansas, James W. Denver, and is now known as, you guessed it, Denver, Colorado. Well, that's the bookend version of this geographical confusion, but let me tell you about what happened in the middle of it all. In that July of 1858, the summer before I was born, the Pikes Peak Gold Rush, as it was known, began with the discovery of gold at those Dry Creek diggings. This gold rush brought 100,000 gold seekers to this area known then as the Pikes Peak Country, which included Arapahoe County as well as the unorganized southwestern corner of the Nebraska Territory and parts of New Mexico and Utah territories. Kansas was having growing pains as the northeastern commercial centers and the central agricultural populations were beginning to be a bit concerned about this population power shift with the influx of miners to the Rockies in the mountainous regions in the west of the territory. Meanwhile, the miners, being 600 miles from their capital, felt that the legislature was out of touch with their needs. It occurred to them 
that a new territory or state would have the benefit of being responsive to their economic situation and consolidate the population with what was currently spread across four territories. Many residents of the mining region felt disconnected from the remote governments of the Kansas and Nebraska territories, so they voted to form their own Territory of Jefferson on October 24th, 1859. And as of that date, the residents up and down the South Platte River Basin could finally exclaim, we're not in Kansas anymore. And never again would any part of the Platte River be found in the territory or state of Kansas. The following month, the Jefferson Territorial Legislature organized 12 counties for the new territory, including El Paso County. The Jefferson Territory never received federal sanction, but on February 28, 1861, U.S. President James Buchanan signed an act organizing the Territory of Colorado. El Paso County was one of the original 17 counties created by the Colorado Legislature on November 1, 1861. Part of El Paso County's Western Territory was eventually broken off to create Teller County, in 1899. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, if you'd have lived in the small mining town of Victor, Colorado, as we did in the late 1800s, you would have experienced several address changes without ever leaving your house. When I moved my little family of five southwest from Golden, Colorado to Victor, in the early part of 1894, that area known as Cripple Creek was then located in El Paso County. And within a few years, it became Teller County. The gold-bearing area of the Cripple Creek District was the core of an ancient volcano within the central Colorado volcanic field, last active over 30 million years ago. For many years, Cripple Creek region's high valley at an elevation of 9,494 feet was considered no more than a cattle pasture. Many prospectors avoided the area after the Mount Pisgah hoax, which in essence was a mini gold rush caused by salting or adding gold to worthless rock. On the 20th of October, 1890, Robert Miller Womack, known as Crazy Bob, he discovered a rich ore, and the last great Colorado gold rush began. Thousands of folks flocked to the region. One of them, Winfield Scott Stratton, was an American prospector, capitalist, and philanthropist. At 42, and just a couple weeks before his birthday, Mr. Stratton discovered the Independence Load near Victor, Colorado on July 4, 1891. That independence claim was one of the largest gold strikes in history. And in 1894, he became the Cripple Creek Mining District's first millionaire. Mr. Stratton gave money to prospectors or others in need, and he paid for schooling for a teen who was a talented violinist and provided all the laundresses in town with bicycles. And after the Cripple Creek Fire of 1896, Stratton paid for food and shelter for many left homeless by the fire. Not to mention the plethora of millions he donated in cash and property to his hometown of Colorado Springs. He is also said to have written a check for $5,000 to Crazy Bob Womack, 
the prospector who first discovered gold at Cripple, but was down on his luck. Although 500 million worth of gold ore was dug from Cripple Creek, Womack died penniless on the 10th of August, 1909. Now, Mr. Stratton himself lived a simple life in a wooden house on Weber Street in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He became quite reclusive and eccentric. He drank and read a great deal, but rarely had guests or went out socially. And Mr. Stratton was fond of a quote by William Henry Channing. To live content with small means, to seek elegance rather than luxury, and refinement rather than fashion, to be worthy and not respectable, to study hard, think quietly, talk gently, act frankly, and listen to stars and birds, to babes and sages with open heart, to bear all cheerfully, do all bravely, await occasions, hurry never, in a word, to let the spiritual, unbidden and unconscious, grow up through the common. This is to be my symphony. Winfield Scott Stratton died in 1902 at 54 years of age. Victor itself was founded in 1891, shortly after Winfield Scott Stratton discovered gold nearby. The town was named after the Victor Mine, which itself was supposedly named for an early settler of the area by the name of Victor Adams. In 1892, Harry Frank and Warren Woods founded the Mount Rosa Mining and Milling and Land Company. The Battle Mountain area, located just above Victor, had the largest, most prolific mines in the mining district, and the town became known as the City of Mines. Victor officially became a city on July 16, 1894. That same year, the Woods brothers discovered gold when they began digging the foundation for a building which resulted in the creation of the gold coin mine. At that time, 8,000 people lived in Victor. In three years, the population of Victor increased from 500 to 10,000 people. The town boomed as the surrounding Cripple Creek Mining District quickly became the most productive gold mining district in Colorado. Mines in Victor and Cripple Creek provided 21 million ounces of gold. At current exchange prices, the value of that much gold would have been nearly 40 billion dollars. That's billion with a B. The mining district, which hit its peak in 1900, became the second largest gold district in the country's history. Although Victor's fame was overshadowed by that of its neighbor, Cripple Creek, many of the best gold mines of Cripple Creek District were located at Victor, including Stratton's Independence Mine and Mill, and the Portland Mine. Half of Battle Mountain's gold was extracted by the Portland Mine, which was called the Queen of the District. Did you know that heavyweight boxing champion Jack Dempsey was a mucker in the Portland Mine? During those beginning boom stages of growth in Victor, my family was still living in Golden and I was working for the Union Pacific Railroad. In 1892, 
Colorado was suffering from a national financial depression, and we lost our special federal status for silver prices. As a result, the Denver economy cratered. I had been hearing a lot about the goings-on in Cripple Creek area. Being involved with the railroad and all, I'd hear stories from locomotive crews and read things in the newspapers. Several of us were bound and determined to strike at Rich and Victor. So we all got together and concocted a plan to get to Victor with our families as soon as possible. Well, after our fourth child was born in September of 1893, I finally surrendered to the gold fever along with several of my friends and their families. We discussed plans together to take a leave from the railroad that winter, and then sometime in the early spring of 1894, we moved our families to Victor. I was 35, and my wife Catherine was, uh, well, we're not exactly sure. She couldn't exactly remember her birthday, around 35, 36. Edward had just turned six years old, Isabella was five, Francis was about a year and a half, and Nellie was just about seven months old. At the height of the rush, there were 500 mines operating in the district. 500! Although a majority of the mine owners and investors lived in Cripple Creek, it just so happened that most of the miners lived in Victor. And that's where I wanted to be. Not that I wanted to drill blasting holes, load dynamite, or operate a hoist. Rather, I wanted to open a dry goods mercantile to serve the masses, so that's exactly what I did. We called it the Boardman Block General Store. It was built and officially opened that same year, and business was great. Mama Catherine loved the store and the socializing. She made friends everywhere she went. And you might ask yourself, what in the heck could you possibly sell in a dry goods mercantile in the 1890s? That's a fair question. I think you'd be a bit surprised at what there actually was. Along with dolls, we also had electric refrigerators, flat irons, light bulbs, fans, waffle irons, umbrellas, electric tools, and some other appliances, but no groceries. Just dry goods of that sort. The kids would demonstrate the tricycles, or velocipedes as we called them back in the day. They were quite a popular item. There was even a velocipede hand car used by the railroads in Colorado. It, it would set on the right track, and a stabilizing wheel would swing over to the left side. At some guy named George S. Sheffield out of Michigan invented it, because he got tired of waiting for the train ride to work. The mercantile took up most of the main floor of the building. We had rooms upstairs for storage and renting and such. And the family, well, we lived in the back of the place. Catherine, dear, how long has Isabella been coughing like that? Sounds like the cool air has been a little rough on her. Oh, she does have a slight fever, dear. 
Maybe she just needs warm soup and some rest. In the spring of 1895, our six-year-old Isabella came down with a fever, chills, and a sore throat. Well, she only got worse until she couldn't swallow and then struggled to breathe. Then our youngest, Nellie, started showing symptoms. And then the oldest, Edward. Dr. Carlin and Dr. Delaney came up from Denver and told us what it was they had, but they didn't know what to do for it. On Sunday, the 21st of April, 1895, Isabella died at six years, 18 days old. The following Friday, the 26th of April, Nellie died at one year, seven months, and 19 days old. Then two days later, again on a Sunday, the 28th of April, Edward died at six years and 11 months old. Until the late 1800s, there was no diagnosed distinction between diphtheria and scarlet fever. So what the children really had, we may never know. Our family had been cut in half. Three of our four children were dead. We were all so heartbroken, but mother, well, mother was emotionally and psychologically crushed. The stress of losing three of her four children within eight days started to shut her down physically. Within one week, her hair went from charcoal black to white. It took months for her to want to even live again. And a woman who held a babe against her bosom said, Speak to us of children. And he said, Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts. For they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable.
Hello, dear. How's your day been? You have so many friends here, Catherine. They've been coming in the store asking for you almost every day. They're worried about you. So am I. Has Frances been into much trouble today? After that last stunt she pulled walking on the tracks over the railroad trestle, I worry about that little girl. If it wasn't for the fireman Billy Sullivan running into that trestle in front of the oncoming train, somehow he miraculously pulled her under the tracks while the train went across the top of both of them. And then he carried her off the bridge after it passed. I'm afraid that our devastation would be near complete if she'd have died. Hopefully that spanking Billy gave her will be something she never forgets. Gus, a good morning to you, Gus. Just the man I'm looking for. Hi, Frank. That was some bit of luck of you finding a vein of gold while digging out the basement of your hotel. What's the chances? Well, I guess around here it's pretty good. How's the progress coming on that anyway? Things are good, Gus. That's why I came by. Dad wanted me to come and let you know we, we planned on doing a blast this morning at the gold coin mine. It's going to be near the head frame, Gus. Nothing you folks should have to worry about as far as danger, I think. We're all just concerned with the trauma you've been through recently, losing your children and all. It should be a decent concussion being just across the tracks from you. Might even shake these a bit. Please keep an eye on your misters. We just thought you ought to be notified in advance. You are kind, Frank. Please give my thanks to Harry and Warren. The Woods family has been some considerate neighbors and some of our most loyal customers. Hey, dear. Frank Wood just came by to warn us that they're going to be doing some more blasting near the head frame within the hour. He, he was mostly just worried about your nerves. You don't need to worry, okay? He says there's no danger of rocks or anything coming this far. Catherine told me later that just before the blasting started, it seemed like something told her, Catherine, go get Frances from her bedroom, where she is sleeping. So she did immediately. Frances was still a toddler, barely two and a half years old, and was laying on her pillow, taking a morning nap. Catherine brought her into the store. Well, no sooner did she have her in the store, than the blasting started. sound good? My goodness, Catherine. That's a big rock. And it just came through the roof and smashed into Francis's pillow. Well, needless to say, Catherine was in a constant state of mourning after that. She had a complete emotional breakdown. She would walk to the graveyard every day just to visit the children's graves. She was barely able to travel. The doctors told me to take her away for a rest. 
So before the year 1895 was out, we sold the business for $9,000 and moved back to Golden. I took Francis, age three at the time, to the convent in Denver called Loretto Heights Academy at 3001 South Federal Boulevard. The motto adopted by the Sisters of Loretto was three Latin words, fides, mores, cultura. It means faith, tradition, culture. It was a tender mercy that Francis enjoyed very much to have those loving sisters teaching her and caring for her while we were gone. Gone where, you ask? Well, as the doctors prescribed, I took my wife away from there. We went to California, took the train. We went there for a few weeks and ended up being a couple of months to see the ocean, to enjoy warmer weather, and to recover from the trauma. I had to do something to revive her, to save her, to bring her back to us. Shortly after we returned to Colorado, we gathered up Francis from the convent and moved from Golden into Denver. I was devastated. When we got into Denver and I discovered that my luggage with all of my family history, all the details, the names, the pictures, the charts, everything I had to remember my family by had been stolen during the move. Shortly after our move into Denver, we found out that Catherine was pregnant. I was still active with the Union Pacific Railroad, but I spent most of my time on leave of absence to help care for Francis and Catherine. We purchased a grocery store on Downing Street with rooms upstairs. I didn't know a hill of beans about running a grocery store, but to my delight and to her benefit, Catherine was a natural at it. And even better, she loved it. She loved being active and she was a natural with people. She dug right in and bloomed where she was planted. On the 7th of March, 1896, Catherine gave birth to Mary Frances. Sadly, again, only a few weeks later, on the 15th of May, little Mary died. We kept the grocery store for a while and later on we sold that and bought another place on Chama Street. I finally went back on the road. In 1900, my Irish bride, Catherine, gave birth to our final child, a son we named James. He lived but six short months. Six children born to Catherine, that could be confirmed, five of them dead. My sweet Catherine was beside herself with grief. Death by Khalil Gibran. Then Elmitra spoke, saying, We would ask now of death. And he said, You would know the secret of death, but how shall you find it unless you seek it in the heart of life? The owl whose night bound eyes are blind unto the day cannot unveil the mystery of light. If you would indeed behold the spirit of death, open your heart wide unto the body of life. For life and death are one, 
even as the river and the sea are one. In the depth of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond. And like seeds dreaming beneath the snow, your heart dreams of spring. Trust the dreams, for in them is hidden the gate of eternity. Your fear of death is but the trembling of the shepherd when he stands before the king, whose hand is to be laid upon him in honor. Is the shepherd not joyful beneath his trembling? That he shall wear the mark of the king. Yet is he not more mindful of his trembling? For what is it to die but to stand naked in the wind and to melt into the sun? And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides, that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered. Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountain top, then you shall begin to climb. And when the earth shall claim your limbs, then shall you truly dance. Dance on, my children, dance on. for listening to the Feeling Your Oats podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Growing listeners will allow complete focus on content. Once again, I am just randomly being me. Until next time, remember, when your why is clear, your how is easy. And hey, we'll see you in the spring if the water's clear. Well, dad blessed it. I sure enjoyed the visit today. If you gained something from it, be kind enough to follow us and leave a review. And do it right now. If you would, it'd sure be appreciated. Your comments have been so considerate and honestly left me blushing. And good night, those reviews make a big difference in the program's visibility. On the Apple platforms, you select the Go to Show option. And then click the circle plus sign at the top right to follow. Then scroll down below the episodes to leave some stars and a review. Them algorithms need all the help they can get so as I can disrupt more good folks like you. So I tell you what, if you got a friend or three that you just don't like very much, well, share this podcast with them and let us bug them for a while. And if you have comments or suggestions for future discussions, well, don't just keep them to yourself. We, we'd love to hear from you. You can DM us on our Instagrams at fyo.podcast. And thank you. Are you still there? Remember to download the Family Tree app and see how you are related to the people from today's episode. All those links will be included in the show notes. Sometimes it's important to look a gift horse in the mouth. Your gift is your ancestry. Your superpower is their family history stories that make you.
Not a one of us crawled out from under a rock, regardless of what you've been told. You have 4,094 grandparents, over 12 generations, with thousands of love stories, battles, difficulties, sadness, happiness, and expressions of hope for the future that allows you to be here today. We are the culmination of so many things we did not choose. It was designed that way. So be gentle with yourself and others. Take the time to learn yourself through your family history stories. There are innumerable tributaries flowing into the life experience that deceptively seems to be your own, but it's not. So think about that as you row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Russell M. Nelson stated, When our hearts turn to our ancestors, something changes inside us. We feel part of something greater than ourselves. <laughs> I concur. Thank you for joining me on another unbelievably true adventure. Find your family history superpower and activate it. Until the next time, bye. <laughs>